1. Education Late in the summer of 1944, I concluded my service with the San Francisco Chinese Presbyterian Church in Chinatown, where I had put in several years as a youth worker. I then began work on the Western Shoshone Reservation in Owyhee, Nevada, on the Idaho border. Half of the reservation was in Idaho. I served at Owyhee until January 1953. Some have suggested that I record some of my experiences there, since much information concerning the American Indian is being lost. Owyhee is 100 miles north of Elko, and the same distance south of Mountain Home, Idaho. The reservation is roughly 22 miles by 24 miles. It is surrounded by high mountains to the east and south, and the floor of the valley is 5,400 feet in altitude. Known as Dock Valley, it is a network of sloughs, ponds, and streams feeding through the Owyhee River. The maximum consecutive frost-free days in the summer are usually around 90, but I saw as few as 45. Except for one year, the snows began on Labor Day weekend. Before my time, there was once a heavy snowfall on the 4th of July. Because of all the water in the valley, mosquitoes were so thick that it was impossible to mow the lawn at the manse except in a breeze. Otherwise, you would breathe in mosquitoes. Fish and game were plentiful, and the deer so abundant that what the Indian Christians gave us provided us with most of our meat almost all year long. When the Indians were placed on the reservation, rations of food and clothing were provided, and they soon forgot how to hunt. It was years later that the second missionary, in the late teens and early 1920s, showed them how to hunt. Reverend Emile Schwab was the great missionary at Hawaii. My arrival sparked a curious response. Because of my omnivorous interests, I found the Indian past very interesting. As a foreigner myself in background, as a descendant of Armenian refugees, I found the variety of American cultures intensely enlightening. This met with a ready response from the Indians. My foreignness helped me to win their acceptance. The two tribes at Owyhee were, and are, the Paiute and the Shoshone. Related peoples, but culturally very different. They could understand each other's speech, but not each other's ways. The Paiutes were very tribal. Whatever their leaders determined became law for all. Dissent ended when the leaders came to a conclusion. The tribe refused to allow the Idaho Power Company to electrify the reservation after World War II until one elderly Shoshone agreed to it. The Paiutes had agreed, but this one man among the Shoshones was a holdout. For the individualistic Shoshones, unanimity was necessary. Weeks went by, with many meetings, the power company officials traveling from Boise, Idaho, about 144 miles distance, to try to persuade old Jimmy Bell to agree to electrification. He finally did. For the Shoshones, this was the right way. For the Paiutes, it was stupid. When the Civil War began in 1861, the Paiutes asked the Shoshones to unite with them to destroy white power. They argued the matter at a meeting at the Reese River. Even Nevada's territorial governor attended the meeting, arguing against war. The Shoshones, usually favorable to the white man, finally decided for peace. In 1944, the grandchildren of the older Indians, some of whom could remember the coming of the white man, were totally disinterested in the old ways. The very elderly had no one to listen to them. Then I appeared, and long into the night they told me of the old days and old ways, how to scalp, how to survive, how to find edible plants, and much, much more. They showed a special hostility to anthropologists. The Indians laughed at how easily the anthropologists accepted lies. Mostly they disliked talking to them, and only did so because the U.S. Indian Service and its officials urged them to. The Indians' unwillingness to talk arose from the fact that the anthropologist had an agenda. He asked his questions in terms of what interested him. Had he first allowed the elderly Indians to talk at will, and then asked questions, the results would have been better. From my perspective, there was another problem with the anthropologists. 
Their framework of reference was evolution. They viewed Indian culture in terms of a myth, not in terms of taking an interest in a people whom God created and who needed Jesus Christ to attain their true potential. The anthropologist's laboratory approach irritated the Indians. As a result, even when they gave correct answers to the scientists' questions, the meaning and flavor of their lives was missed. To the Indians, those questions sounded artifact-oriented, not concerned with people. The older generations of Indians had seen a different kind of life. They believed that many of the answers provided by the old ways were still valid. To cite one example, old Jenny Owaihi often gave me, quote, practical, unquote, advice. She came to the reservation about the same time I did. Many years earlier, she had worked for the Grant Riddle family. Grant Riddle died at the age of 80 before my arrival, but had related to others that Jenny worked for his family when he was born, and at that time already had grown-up children. His estimates would put her age at close to 120 years. Jenny told me that her first four babies were girls. At the birth of the fourth, her husband broke the power of the spirits by grabbing the newborn girl baby and braining her on a rock. Jenny's next child was a boy. She was a kind and thoughtful woman. For her, the killing of the girl was a sad necessity in order to ensure a boy. For a boy meant survival in the wilderness. The old men believed strongly that theirs had been the best kind of education, by their grandparents. They thought today's Indians had gone astray and were worthless because the old pattern of education was broken. That was when I first heard the story of the little boy who survived alone in the wilderness after his parents were killed by enemies until he could find another camp of his own people. For these old men, that was education. It meant passing on the wisdom of the past and present to the future. These men saw the white man's world as full of marvels. The radio was of great interest to them, and the white man's guns and knives were wonderful. But for them, the lifelink was gone. Their grandchildren were not linked to them, but to the white man, and foolishly so. Those old men respected book learning. Some of them had gone to Carlisle, Pennsylvania in its earliest days, and they knew Pop Warner, later Stanford's famous football coach. One young Indian was named Warner. Some of the elders were better readers than their children and grandchildren. They respected my own interest in books. Family life in their childhood had been hard and bleak, dominated by the necessity for survival. One or two of them recognized that the freedom of the new life meant that one could do as he pleased, not as the family or the band dictated. They were not sure that such freedom was good. Some of their stories were about antelope hunting, such as how a knowledge of the way antelope run can enable one to kill many with only a bow and arrows. The Indian hunted when he needed food. He caught and dried fish in the spring runs when he could be sure of catching great numbers. He was not a sportsman, but a survivalist. It was rare for one of them, in those days at any rate, to enjoy hunting or fishing for its own sake. One reason for the catastrophe which struck Indian tribes was that now, with the coming of the white man, there were alternative forms of education. In the West, at least, Indians normally traveled in small bands. The whole tribe was not together. They survived by living in small bands seeking food. There were no alternative lifestyles confronting children, youth, or adults. The pattern of life was set, but not simple. Food gathering was complex and difficult. The white man's arrival complicated education. It introduced an alternate lifestyle with many material advantages, including liquor. The Indians had not spanked children. In a society where life meant a necessary dependence on others in the band, the choice was not one of lifestyles, but of life or death. The child grew up doing what he was supposed to do. The difference was whether or not he did it better than most. One of the most devastating effects of the white man's influence was that Indian children no longer grew into a set mold. 
Previously, the Indian could be brutal or not. He could be kindly or vicious. But in any case, he was an Indian who belonged to a band and lived the life of a band member. Now, other patterns, alien to the life of the band, were being introduced. Children were no longer of necessity bound to their parents and the band. At an early age, they could work for the white men and be free of their people. The saddest fact of my own experience with the Indians was the indifference of the children to their parents. The children were never chastised. The parents loved and indulged them. Frustrating the child seemed to them a white man's cruelty. A child of five could demand inclusion in the play of older children and get it. This soon ended the game in nonsense. There was no frustration for a child anywhere. I do not remember hearing an Indian baby cry. At the first sign of discontent, the baby was put to the breast by the mother. Never to face frustration is no preparation for life. Not surprisingly, by the age of 10, alcoholism was commonplace. By 13 or 14, fornication too. Self-denial was an alien idea, and an inability to accept frustration was commonplace. In recent years, this reservation has had the highest suicide rate in the United States, a fact closely related to the nurture of children there. The older men, who themselves often had problems with alcoholism, called drunkenness and alcoholism, quote, the whiskey religion, unquote. I had never heard the term before. It was used by these older Indians very seriously, but some of the younger men used it as a joke. What older men meant by it, they explained, was that what Christians looked for in Christ, Indians often found in a bottle. For them, it was peace, an answer to problems, empowerment, escape, and more. There was another factor, too, as they saw it. Whiskey changed a man, like Jesus did, but in another direction. A bottle of whiskey was for them a religious solution. Some compared it to the peyote cult. Peyote, a, quote, cactus button, unquote, as some called it, was called the Holy Spirit by some groups. Through this drug, they transcended everyday life, had visions in brilliant colors, and communed with the spirits. Before the white man came, Indians used certain plants religiously to cultivate trance-like experiences and visions. These, then, gave way to the more efficacious peyote and to whiskey. Peyote was used in cult practices, of course, and liquor was not, but the parallel between the results of drugs in the old days and whiskey nowadays was strong enough for them to call drinking, quote, the whiskey religion, unquote. Religion for the Indians was a pragmatic concern. Their old beliefs were in spirits. The wolf and the coyote were greatly admired for their hunting prowess and were thus important in Indian religion. But what Indians wanted most from religion was healing. Hence, Pentecostalism and other healing churches appealed to them, until the healing failed and they abandoned such churches. Radio healing preachers were the only kind they listened to. Before I ever heard of Oral Roberts, who began his career in those days, from any Christian publication, I heard about him from Indians. Roberts was close to the Indians in his religious perspective. Perhaps it would be worthwhile to explore the religious premises of alcoholism in other cultures. The Indian's description of it as the, quote, whiskey religion, unquote, has at times been of help to me in dealing with non-Indian alcoholics. Lest it be falsely assumed that these elderly storytelling Indians simply longed for, quote, the good old days, unquote, I had better relate a revealing episode. One cold day with snow on the ground, some of these old Indians stood in front of Reed's, one of the two trading places on the reservation. A man who had been indoctrinated into the new Indianism later the Indian rights movement, began to talk about the injustices of the white man and the land stolen from the Indians. The older men erupted into laughter, scorn, and abusive language. 
I asked one of them what he had said in his Shoshone language, and he answered, quote, I told him that I grew up with his grandfather. I remember that man shivering in his moccasins and breechcloth on a cold day because he was a poor hunter. You have two pairs of pants on to keep warm, I said, and the white man's shoes and the white man's automobile to drive in. If you are fool enough to want what your grandfather had, don't count me in. I'm an Indian, not a jackass. Unquote. Those older Indians were hard-headed and unsentimental. That was when one man, laughing, told me the meaning of the conflict between whites and Indians. Quote, we wanted everything the white man had, but we didn't want him. The white man wanted what we had, but didn't want us. We lost. Unquote. The white man, by now, had become a sentimentalist, and so too had the younger Indians. But the older Indians I knew were all realists, and they also had a sense of humor. 